0: Welcome to Tutorial Stories, LCF's object-based podcast in which I, Susanna Cordner, invite in someone who works in or with fashion and ask them to bring in an item from their work or from their wardrobe. And we then use that object to form the basis of the conversation. Today I'm joined by Stephanie Wood from the V&A Museum. Thank you very much for joining me, Steph. Hello. Um, So, as I said there, within this series I invite in people who work in or with fashion. So I find the best place to start is to ask people to tell us what their job is and describe what it entails.
1: Yeah, um, so hello. Uh, I am a project curator uh, in uh, the VNA Museum in the Furniture, Textiles and Fashion Department. Um, and I was co-curator of the Mary Quant exhibition, uh, which opened this year. Um, and it's basically my job to research, uh, develop and then deliver uh, the exhibition. Um, and then once the exhibition is opened, it's all about kind of promoting the show, offering lectures and tours, giving lots of press interviews um, yeah that's me. Yeah
0: so de- developing, delivering and engaging with an exhibition and subject as you go um, so that's a wide range of activities I think the word curate gets used a lot um, and in a range of contexts as well today Um could you please outline for us what you think it means to curate what what it, the purpose of a curator is?
1: Um, I think for me it's all very much object-led um, you're right it's banded around as a word but I think for me The job of a curator is very much looking after and developing a collection, and by that I mean uh, working with conservation, making sure they're in good condition, storing them um, in the best possible way, acquiring new objects uh, for your collection. But it's also, I guess, about helping to provide access um, and better understanding of those collections, so store appointments, writing articles, giving tours and and talks, cataloguing the objects, making all of that information available to the public. Um, And yeah, in my case, a big part of it is exhibitions uh, and showcasing key parts of your collection through that. Yeah, I think that's fantastic and I really love the idea that all of that activity
0: is rooted in the collection rather than that being just an inspiration point from which other projects can form. You must have the collection and, uh, to be able to be able to create that other content and
1: I think that's really interesting. So how did you get into fashion curation? Um, it was a bit of a funny one for me because I guess for, for a lot of um, fashion historians and fashion curators, there's a very clear route And I didn't take it. (laughs) Um, I basically, I graduated from art school. I was at art school in Birmingham uh, studying fine art for many years, many, many years ago. And um, I kind of came out with not a whole lot of employable skills, um, I would say. And then... That's your opinion. In my opinion, opinion, yeah. Yeah, I did learn a lot. But um, yeah, they weren't particularly asking for those skills when I was applying for jobs. So I wanted to be an artist and... I always thought that I would be working somewhere like Tate or like a gallery, Um, but I ended up uh, kind of falling almost into kind of arts administration. Uh, And then my first job at the museum, uh, at the V&A, was scarily about 11 years ago, and that was uh, office manager and PA to the Furniture, Textiles, and Fashion Department, of which I'm, I'm still a part now, um, which is a really interesting role, actually. It's a really good kind of overview of the work that we do, um, and it covers literally everything, like supporting the public program, exhibitions, gallery redisplays, books, um, and all of the kind of day-to-day running of the department and how it relates to the rest of the museum. Um, and it was really just through working in the department that I fell in love with fashion and uh, was just kind of obsessed with it from quite an an early time. Um, And it was just so lovely to have the collection at your fingertips you could go across. At that point, before... Um, we moved out to the Cloth Worker Centre uh, in Kensington, Olympia. Most of the garments uh, were downstairs and you could pop in and uh, there was rolling racking there and you could go A to Z with 20th Century Designers. So it was an incredible kind of resource. Um, and yeah, to learn from. exactly. Yeah, so then I kind of uh, started working my way up from there and decided that this was, I wanted to work with fashion uh, and with fashion designers and then took on any kind of really any opportunities I could get. So working on the redisplay of the fashion gallery, I worked on, um, I was project manager of Fashion in Motion, which is a series of fashion shows we do here um, in the museum. Um, Yeah, literally anything I could. Yeah. So, So, funny route. Yeah, Yeah, but showing
0: more than willing as you go. And I love that idea of your passion for fashion kind of growing through that connection to the collection. So everything you said about the importance of um, accessing and profiling the collection and caring for the collection maybe came from your own early professional experience. Or definitely. Um, and I also really liked what you said about how that arts administration role and office manager role informed and gave you access to all those different contents. And I definitely find with people who are going into the sector today, who want to be curator or exhibition maker mm. and that happens to be the path that we're both on at the moment and they're brilliant paths and i would recommend them but there's a myriad of other roles within a museum or within um this sector that might spark interest and definitely and towards the same goal
1: yeah and i think also a lot of people don't quite realize I and mean, they see like the the world of a fashion curator as being this incredibly glamorous thing mm-hmm. and actually underneath it all it's a lot of spreadsheets it's yeah. a lot of admin yes. and it's generally an interest in things yeah. um and i think and I always get that people ask me like oh how do you get into doing what you do and I think yeah you kind of need to have a willingness to do it all and a real interest in it yeah um because a lot of the work that we do isn't particularly glamorous but if you're excited by that detail then that's what keeps you going
0: yeah love the idea of being excited by the detail and also that is really particular I'd say to this particular role is having that spread of skills and being interested by them all I definitely have had worked with me in the past here where some I've set a task and I've thought it was an exciting one and it's been delving into the history of something or whatever and I've very quickly learned that that maybe isn't the expectation of someone going into curating. As you said I think people maybe have, it's almost like the new fashion magazine editor in that people envision it as something where you're going to be mixing in a certain social scene and uh, doing a lot of time kind of networking and there is an element of that but the majority of it is the day-to-day care of the objects and got to care about that as much. Absolutely. Yeah that's really interesting. Um, So you also mentioned there that your own training and background kind of started in an art practice and that you actually originally wanted to be an artist and then were drawn to these galleries or kind of tape roles before you came to the Um, V&A. What do you consider the relationship between art and fashion to be? How have those two passions or subjects for you run together at this point?
1: Um I think they're pretty similar in a lot of ways and quite different in others. Um in terms of similarity, um I guess like if you look at like the kind of creative practice and process of a lot of fashion designers and artists, it's relatively similar. It's kind of researching it's researching a certain topic. Um there's a certain creative process involved and then there's a body of work that comes out at the end. Um, I think one of the things I always get really frustrated by is the idea that fashion is frivolous and Mm -hmm. it's throwaway. And I get really frustrated by that because actually, for many, many reasons, but also if you see some of these garments, particularly the incredibly well-made couture garments, Mm -hmm. they're works of art. Um, So I think there's a definite, I think I have a real appreciation for both the work of artists and designers. Um, And they're both incredibly collectible. Um, and it's interesting actually, there's, there's like fashion collectors out there who have amazing collections and they're kind of specifically in love with certain designers and what that necessarily means about them. And it's the same with, with art collectors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but they can also both be commodities.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to recognise that they're both commercial markets because I think sometimes within that point about fashion sometimes being seen as frivolous, sometimes it's seen as purely commercial whether, whereas art is seen as purely creative Absolutely. and that isn't an accurate depiction of either industry, so that is something that they've got in common. I also liked what you said about the collector and the action of collecting because so I think the idea of the art, artistic Uh, canon is an accepted form but there's the same thing happening within fashion history and becoming more and more a collector's market, as you say. Has that been interesting from those roles within the kind of steering of the department and the different projects, but now within your work as a curator, are you conscious of um, well, of demand going up, are prices going up uh, for when you go to auctions and things? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And the thing I find really interesting and also a bit uh, kind of scary because it kind of shows the impact that an institution like the V&A has is... The, the market value of something once you've put on an exhibition mm. about a certain yeah. designer so um, I found it interesting with the Alexander McQueen exhibition um, there was this real kind of there was a certain moment when the cost after he died the cost of um, McQueen pieces were through the roof um, but then it seemed to reach a real saturation point and they'd definitely gone down significantly mm. um, but yeah I've, I've noticed it more recently with Mary Quant things uh, which tend to be a lot more affordable um, given that Many of them are kind of slightly more mass-produced, uh, obviously on a smaller scale than today's standards. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, if you're looking on eBay, the kind of cost of, of the average Mary garment is significantly higher now than it was, like, a few years ago.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's still comparatively accessible, but there's still been a peak... Yeah, ...that relates to that public interest. Is that... Uh, is that satisfying to see? Is, is that something that you're, you know, you've described that almost as something to be slightly wary of? But I imagine that being quite satisfying, knowing because that implies that your exhibitions had an impact and that it's prompted people to see her work as collectible and as something that should be commemorated and kept.
1: Absolutely. I mean, in in terms of that, yes, I think it's a really positive thing, um, and I think. For us, with the marijuana exhibition, it was so important that we really underlined her importance, and it was the first time in fifty years that we, like, that anyone had done a big exhibition on her like this. So, I think to see that impact in a kind of commercial market, um, like that has been really interesting. But I am still wary of it because it's a commercial. Yes, enterprise sure. in itself <clears throat> um, and as a museum we always try and steer, steer clear of that so that's the reason why I'm a bit like Ooh. <laughs> yeah it,
0: exactly because it's a different way of reading and engaging with those objects it's yeah, it's not um, collecting for collecting's sake it's also value driven so no but in terms that. of like
1: yeah raising her profile and her importance like I think it's been an incredible thing yeah and I'm very happy that she's getting the recognition
0: yeah absolutely more on Mary later and also more on that line between something that should be collected. And kept and something that should be worn and enjoyed, because that always um, I find a really interesting dividing line, and one I seem to skip around myself. Um, returning to that idea of collecting, you also mentioned when you're describing your role and, and your career trajectory um, that past work with the Fashion Emotion programme. And I'm really conscious, like working with you and um, as one of your friends, um, that you've got a real interest in contemporary designers and contemporary fashion as well. Um, if there's any budding collectors listening, or any curators from other um, institutions, um, what's um, what do it- what contemporary designers do you think people should be
1: watching and thinking about collecting in the future? Mm. Um, for me, I guess two of my favourites are Grace Wells Bonner mm, and yes. Matty Bovan, who I know you you know from your kind of early yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> Matty and I went to school together. So. <laughs> um, but um, that was something I discovered after realising how much I loved him. It's just yeah. a happy coincidence. Yeah, nice plot twist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Grace Wells Bonner, uh, we actually did a fashion in motion with her a few years ago um, for her graduate. Collection and she's a really interesting designer. In her, she's quite different in the way that she approaches her kind of uh, producing her collections, and it's very much informed by, um, I guess, the politics of culture and her own kind of um, her own heritage. Mm. Um, so, she was born, I think, in South East London, and uh, she's of English and. Jamaican heritage i think is correct to say um and she the, her first collection that she did that we um featured in our fashion in motion uh a few years ago uh was called afrique and it was amazing it was such a beautiful event it was such an incredible collection and it was all very much focusing on uh, her own culture and um, representations of black men uh in in popular culture um And also notions of kind of European and African luxury. Um, And the garments were beautiful. They were kind of Coco Chanel inspired, like gorgeous suits um, in really lovely kind of fabrics and embellishment. Um, But for men, it was all menswear. And it was gorgeous. It was such a gorgeous show. I cried uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's always, for me, remained one of my favourite fashion emotions. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that. And I remember
0: it being kind of hypnotic. There was a real atmosphere in the room. Um, and I think it really it's a really stellar example of what fashion emotion is. And I advise anyone listening to go and um, look it up. um what it's capable of in a way because it really explores that idea of fashion show as performance and as a kind of interaction rather than just a press play event, absolutely
1: and one of the lovely things about fashion motion that i've always loved is that it's completely free uh and it also opens up the whole experience of a fashion show to people that just would never have access normally unless you're part of the fashion industry um you're often not you're not privy to seeing that unless you're seeing it on the internet um and yeah I think for many people there's a real kind of hardcore following of people who come to fashion and motion and many of them go on to become designers themselves so there's this really lovely relationship um, of building uh building from very early careers into people coming back to us and us working with them like decades later yeah it's gorgeous yeah I was
0: going to say that's absolutely gorgeous that was something I found really exciting when I worked at the V&A that follow-through of if you engage with a new designer or someone from the industry and they were sort of they have this that quite often I think people who are interested in fashion have a sense of kind of pilgrimage about the V and A, that this is somewhere I definitely had it as a teenager being dropped off in the fashion gallery and still being there three hours later. So it must be really exciting working with someone and, and knowing that you're fulfilling in a in effect a childhood dream with them. But yeah, that's also a brilliant example with Grace on the ways in which fashion can um, sit that line between kind of performative and artistic and design, but also that melting pot of influences you described. So it was menswear, but it was unexpected. It was on her heritage, but it was also inspired by Chanel. Um, in that real kind of juxtaposition there. Um, how about Matty? Why do you think Matty should be collected?
1: I've loved Matty from uh, like his first collections. Um, so he is a recent graduate a few years ago from CSM, Central St. Martin's, uh, in knitwear. Um, and he's just a really great example of like a new generation of uh, designers who are just doing really exciting things. Um, his last collection that he did uh, was apparently inspired by a letter that he received that was sent to his late grandma as well as like the Pendle witch trials and uh English kind of folklore and uh, mysticism and I think he's got a really interesting um approach to his kind of creative process um and also even before I kind of knew about his collections I also knew him from Instagram because of his incredible um makeup that he does he does beautiful (coughs) makeup Um, which he then incorporates into his kind of fashion shows as well. Um, yeah, and I think that's what got me hooked—the makeup yeah. on Instagram.
0: That's so great. So actually, the personality and the um, appearance of the designer and the personality behind the brand ends up being a draw for you. I also think what you said there about the level of research and a kind of combination of narratives that Matthews and his work are really important. And um, I heard him be interviewed on another podcast recently, and he said something actually kind of strikingly similar to what you said about curating, where people have this idea that it's very glamorous, and he sort of gave examples of what people think being a fashion designer will be like but actually he said it's really geeky and it's really hard work and you'll be putting long long hours in and having to build connections and um, just simply being the person at the desk producing the work Um, Mm. so it isn't what people would expect and you don't go into it frivolously or lightly Um,
1: I also think the thing that he's one of the few people who I mean London Fashion Week and the Fashion Week in this country is so London centric Mm. and I love that he refuses to conform to that he's still kind of working out of his kind of Yorkshire based mum's uh, shed at the bottom of the garden garden, (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing I love it
0: and his co his collaborator is um the husband of a friend of his from college he's known for a a really long time and I think he's really good at building a community around him which actually there's there's a kind of social story to both the designers you chose there but with Matty he's I think he should be kind of heralded as a new generation of designer because um I've interviewed a number of people in the last few years uh, within the industry, uh, examples I've from my head, Charles Jeffrey, Stephen Jones, and mm-hmm. the team between um, Rare Thread, who are a textile studio, and Weavers. And they've all given him as an example of a collaborator or client where they're like, he's just lovely. Um, and he's really good at um, crediting the people that he works with, which I think is something that we're seeing increasingly with designers today. But previously, it was very much... Um, um, designer as island or artist mm. or icon and that wider web of people who'd worked together maybe didn't get the same um, kind of credit so mm. yeah uh, as you can tell from my enthusiasm I like both <laughs> of your choices so that's really interesting um, The and v- the V&A is uh, kind of internationally renowned for its fashion exhibitions and um, I'd be interested to know how that shaped your professional perspective because you've spoken about the way your career and interest in fashion has really emerged while you're here uh, what In what way do you think working at this institution has influenced
1: your practice? Um, well, I guess, I mean, you know from having worked here before, there's a very V&A way of doing things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, which you don't quite realise until, I guess, you discover how other people do it. Yes. Um, that it's quite different. Um, Definitely the
0: acronyms. Are, and the first job I went into after here, just certain terminology that I just yeah, don't
1: my them. first. Oh my god, you just reminded me. My first <laughs> ever. Um, my first ever meeting. My first ever day on the job. Like eleven, <laughs> just over eleven years ago we were in the room that we're sat in now which is the the meeting room for the department and everybody was going on about nips nips (laughs) nips nips it's such a nightmare we need to resolve these we can't find these nips I don't know where they've gone and nips is not in place objects so uh, if you're doing an audit and it's not where you think it would be it's a nip and that was one of the key kind of drivers for the museum trying to clear up and resolve some of these nips but I just thought they were crazy a bit of a baptism of
0: fire yeah yeah yeah, exactly all those terms I had this um, my equivalent was on my first day um, every exhibition has its bible which is the kind of folder of all the core information object profiles and you can kind of track and trace where which object's is going to go and how you're building that exhibition story but Bible turns out to be a uh, largely V&A specific name and I, I found it really confusing on my first day I thought this is a religious bunch why do you keep on my phone to this and why does my new boss need more than one in her office but, Yeah, yeah n- nips um, are a really good one because it can be a bit of an icebreaker if someone doesn't know
1: quite what that means and they're being really serious about it like yes. we can't find these nips <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah no I think more broadly there is definitely a V&A way of doing things um, obviously we're a partly public funded institution Mm -hmm. so there's a a big kind of our main kind of framing of the work that we do is educational Uh, and it's about kind of educating people about design history and like interesting things they might not have thought about and just generally giving them more information so that informs everything that we do Um, and I think particularly when it comes to exhibitions like taking all of that knowledge and all of that research and then just kind of turning it into something very digestible Mm -hmm. that's if it's a label 60 words or 50 words long or if it's a panel like 100 120 um and understanding and trying like really prioritizing the experience of the viewer and the visitor that's always kind of at the core of what we do yeah and how do you find that experience as
0: the curator and as the expert in every subject you're creating an exhibition around? Because I think for some curators, that's the joy of it, it's the throw the chase, it's the challenge how to present this in a way that's going to engage different audience groups and different levels of kind of knowledge base on a subject and then for others that's the agony because you're there probably like bursting at the seams
1: with all these things you want to talk about and you've got that 60 word deadline to exactly um it is tricky 60 words you <laughs> can't say a lot in 60 words Gosh. but I mean they they teach you they do really good training here and they teach you like different ways of getting that information out so you might um they call it like with the text writing it's like um swimming so for the divers who want to get like all of the information you put all of that information maybe on the website and you can link to it or it's like lots of information at the bottom of the label whereas the top of the label is for the paddlers who are literally just going to read the first sentence and then you have the swimmers who kind of delve in a bit more um and i guess that's kind of the approach that the line you have to follow really like there's some people who aren't going to read any of that text mm. that you've just spent six months writing <laughs> um but some people want to read it all and they want to read more so it's kind of making sure that everybody's catered for and making sure you've got information on your website that they can read and articles and that you're giving press interviews um yeah it's kind of providing for everybody um sometimes you get you, you get frustrated and people don't get it and think you've not given them enough or you've given them far too much and they don't care but you can't please everyone
0: yeah absolutely yeah I think also any feedback you get of that kind it means probably that you're engaging with enthusiasts who came with their own kind of narrative in mind um, and I think that an exhibition is about opening it to as wider audience as possible so I think that's a good attitude and I love the idea of the divers and the swimmers <laughs> I visualise it long. I was going to say I've got a great mental image of <laughs> them going through the fashion gallery now so you've spoken within this about that wider network of, of, of work and roles and responsibilities, there's different audiences you have to match, um, and this idea of the exhibition as the final output for all this work. Within that, there's also this wider team, mm-hmm. um, so there's all these different people co- contributing, and I think the V&A is a particular structure around that. Uh, could you please describe the ways in which that wider team contribute to an exhibition?
1: We are a particularly big institution. I mean, I guess in smaller ones, like you might be doing a role where you're covering lots of different types of roles. But in this institution, we have lots of different departments who do things. And uh, with exhibitions in particular, it, it absolutely takes a village. Um, you have the curatorial team. So for Mary Quant, it was myself and Jenny Lister, um, with some assistance from assistant curators along the way. Um, but it takes so many different departments to deliver that. So you're literally working across the board with people. You're working with conservation; they do all of the kind of um, all of the assessments to check the condition of any of your garments. They do all of the mounting. Uh, you work with your exhibitions team, who do all of the logistics and kind of. Um, manage all of those relationships with all of the other teams. You work with learning who develop all of your text with you. So you might be wanting to say a thousand things and they're really pairing it back so that the audience is getting a very clear narrative throughout the exhibition. You work with a 2D designer who does all of the graphics. Um, so all of the visuals of how the text looks in the space and the graphics look. You have a 3D designer, he or she um, figures out the kind of layout and the kind of journey through the space like how the visitor is experiencing it You with press marketing text, uh do all of the kind of installing photography visitor services You are the face of the exhibition security so yeah it's it's huge it's vast <laughs> yes. um i kind of find it crazy thinking having worked in a museum this big for a long time thinking about smaller museums and, and galleries where there's one or two people who do all of those things yes. and I just think good mm. luck to you <laughs> like you're doing an amazing job yeah absolutely that's that's yeah that's absolute breadth of activity the idea
0: that, that could come down to one person is pretty impressive and um, you also within that mentioned those front of house people that security or those who will actually be facing the public in the gallery and I can imagine it's really important ensuring that they're informed and, and that they've got good buy-in with the subject definitely
1: yeah and um, I think it's a tricky one for them because um, you know we have such a varied program here and it can cover you know mm-hmm. in any one year everything from like plywood cars food fashion exhibitions and they're not necessarily going to be like they're not going to love every single subject mm-hmm. um, but yeah it's kind of getting them hooked in with certain things that they can kind of relate to because they are the face of the exhibition and if anybody asks them any kind of questions they need to be able to you know talk passionately about it um but yeah the team are the team are amazing and they they love what they do and i think there's a real sense of pride in in working here and getting to kind of be that kind of face of the museum and interaction between the public
0: yeah it's been a real thread thread of the idea of hooking people engaging people but also collaborating with people throughout everything you said which is really nice so as a design museum the vna also views fashion through a particular lens. Um, Your exhibitions, so you talk about Mary Quant, but before that you worked on an exhibition about Balenciaga, um, have both stemmed from the work of an individual and the ways in which that individual's vision has kind of shaped their work, but also the lives and the design and the aesthetics of those around them. Um, How do you combine design history with telling social stories?
1: Um I mean I think with fashion exhibitions it's actually quite an easy one uh to tell both the design history and the kind of social stories because ultimately you know fashion has that like it's completely ingrained with the body mm. and with people um so it's it's a, it's a much easier thing to do um And particularly, like, you know, the last two exhibitions I've worked on, Balenciaga and with Mary Quant, it's looking at one specific designer and how their work has kind of uh, informed the lives of other people who've worn their garments, who've worked with those people. Um, So, yeah, it's quite an an easy one to do, I would say. With the Balenciaga exhibition, it was specifically focused on the cut and construction of the garments and what made them so special. So that was really at the forefront, but within that kind of woven through... You had all of the stories of the wearers as well um, because he dressed some of the the most glamorous women in the world. Um, And ultimately, um, we're all narcissists. We want to kind of see ourselves in the stories. So hearing stories about people is what what people love. Um, And also with Balenciaga, he's such an interesting one because um, whilst we didn't make the focus of the exhibition on his personal life, he personally worked with and trained some of the greats Mm. of fashion history. So you can literally tell a story of 20th century fashion through how he has personally inspired and trained you know some of the most important designers of the 20th century and still today is inspiring contemporary designers so i find that a kind of interesting one looking Absolutely. at the interlinking careers of those people
0: yeah, amazing but again that's a dual story because that's design history and social history and biography being told at the same time so that's that's really really interesting in terms of your own personal perspective um, and the research that you did for the exhibition did you find yourself getting drawn in by personalities or were you able to stay object focused as it work
1: I um I love the social history that's I love that more. <laughs> um, so, and it's like, it's, you, you find that when you put on an exhibition or even when you're dealing with any kind of garments, that you find, like, not just myself, but like the, the rest of the curator team and the conservation team, they refer to the dresses as she or her. Yes. And it's often related to the people who wore them, yeah. so we've got some amazing pieces worn by some incredible women, and we always kind of refer to them by their names yeah. or yeah, they have this kind of imbued personality within the garment yeah. um, from the wearer yeah. um,
0: I think that's amazing that that carries through. I also think it imbues it with a sense of respect as well because I think it yeah it means you. Mm you trust and treasure that piece a little bit and it stays attached. I do exactly the same thing. I had some students tease me last week because I, I was, wasn't was conscious of it at all, but I was going she and he and, <laughs> and Cecil over here and things. And yeah, I think it, from the outside, that can seem like an oddity, but I think it comes from actually a really passionate or loving place. Yeah, like, it is. It's kind of items. a
1: mark of respect, I yeah, think. Yeah,
0: definitely. And also it allows you to keep that garment attached not just to its maker, but to its wearer. Because um, every... Every piece can tell multiple design and social stories. Um, So within that, we've spoken about those objects and what they might carry. Um, I'd be interested to know more about your object selection process for exhibitions. So how do you source and select the objects that go on display do you get to spend a lot of time kind of going through the rails at Clothworkers? You spoke about when the, um, the V&A's fashion collection used to be here on site at the museum, so I imagine it was easier then. But mm. Is that where it all begins for the exhibition?
1: Yeah, it does. I think for us it always starts with the collection and it always starts with the objects. Um, we are so lucky that we have like one of the biggest and... Um, most amazing collections uh, in the world so we always start with our collections here um, so it's literally rifling through at cloth and looking at what we have and pulling up the files and, and finding out the provenance and uh, anything that we can about the objects themselves um, so we always start with our collections and then from there we identify gaps in the collection what we don't have but would love to display um, and then often from there I will be the person that puts together like a Bible, mm-hmm. a massive Bible, um, a dossier of garments that can be found in, in every other collection, mm-hmm. either nationally, international or in private collections as well. Um, and also on auction sites uh, not so relevant when you're working on an exhibition of Balenciaga because very few come up at, um, mm-hmm. on eBay for example, every now and then they come up in kind of slightly more. Um, high-end auction houses. Um, But for Mary Quant, we actually acquired quite a few things from eBay, one from Facebook, actually. Facebook Marketplace in Germany. Um, (laughs) So that's really how we we kind of do it. Uh, And always the kind of deciding factors would be on condition because... If it's in really poor condition, we, we do not have the time, unfortunately, to be able to completely conserve garments to put them on display. Um, our exhibition programme is too busy. Um, strong provenance is always a really important one, and particularly with the Mary Quant exhibition, where we really foregrounded those stories of the women who wore the garments. Um, and actually, with the We Want Quant um, exhibition, we did a public call-out because we knew in terms of that exhibition that Um, There was going to be a lot of garments out there. um, And we knew that it would have affected quite a lot of women. uh, And we wanted to hear those personal stories from those women who'd worn them uh, and any photographs. And that was an incredible campaign. So the We Want Quan campaign, we ended up off the back of doing that public campaign um and press kind of approach to it we've had over a thousand people get in touch with us they still do every day Um, and it's just incredible as a fashion historian to see the photographs and hear the stories and have the garments and you just don't get that when you're buying things from an auction site with no provenance Mm. or off the catwalk um So that's been really incredible.
0: Yeah, and it's really difficult to do in hindsight as well to try and build in that provenance. That's amazing, and also it's a clever it's a clever tactic in terms of exploring your exhibition subject as well because it really asserts the resonance of it and the way that it connects these people. Cause I think, We spoke before about fashion being frivolous. I think sometimes people so underestimate its social significance and something like that. In doing so, you've connected with over a thousand people and a wider audience beyond that who have gone to their own wardrobes and their own personal histories and thought, actually, no, this is something that was a real game-changer for our times.
1: Exactly. I think particularly with something like Mary Quant, because, you know, putting her... Um, contribution uh, within the broader context of what was happening socially and culturally at that time, um, and I think for her, she was an incredible designer that really pushed the boundaries of, you know, what what women could wear, but also, you know, was the the figurehead of an international corporation mm. in the '60s. Um, even from mid '50s, she set up in 1955. So I think she was a real inspiration for a whole generation of women, really, who wanted to look like her and be like her. Um, and I kind of love that that it's kind of transcended fashion and it's actually the garments represent and the wearing of those garments represents something so much more than that about a kind of feeling or a movement or yes. um, yeah like your own kind of personality as part of that yeah absolutely and
0: and buying into a moment or, or then those items kind of existing as evidence that you were there and that you were a part of it and you were part of that cultural experience and um, we're going to move on to your object recent a moment but I can't can't resist first just asking if there is a highlight object from Mary Quant or an example of that way that it resonates in design history and social history that you could give us.
1: Um, My favourite from Mary Quant is uh, this really beautiful dress um, which has incorporated into it. It looks like a waistcoat and a skirt with a tie and a shirt underneath it. But it's actually a dress that has a kind of shirt and tie underneath. And it's one of my favourites. I think it's from nineteen sixty. Three, i'm going to say in 62 63 um it's in this really lovely kind of gray uh wool flannel uh with a kind of striped shirt and a spotty tie and i absolutely love it because it's a really great example of her kind of playing with gender and uh kind of incorporating those traditional masculine tropes like waistcoats and ties into women's wear so it's a typical kind of a-line skirt mm-hmm but it looks like a suit for a woman. Um, And, you know, like we were saying, it's a really great example of her designs, which in many ways kind of expressed but also promoted that struggle Mm -hmm. for um, equal opportunities at the time. Um, I think with her, she very much used kind of fashion and humour as a way of challenging those gender norms in in fashion and within society Mm -hmm. and created something that was a lot more kind of androgynous and and kind of fun fun but playfully challenging the norm yeah
0: playfully challenging is a perfect way of putting it i think i think of her as both transgressive and chic at the same time which is a really clever power play to combine so that sounds like an excellent choice Um, Moving on now, could you please introduce your object? So as I said in in the introduction of this episode, as a part of our conversation, Steph's very kindly brought in an item. Um, As this is audio, to get us (laughs) started, could you please introduce your object by describing it?
1: Yes, so I have brought today um, my childhood scarf, <laughs> which um, yeah I've had it since I was probably about five. It is red. I'm looking at the label. Um, it is 100 percent acrylic. Mm-hmm. Uh, age up to yes, uh, age up to seven years. Made in Taiwan, and it's got the ladybird label on it, which for those of you who are too young to remember was um, stocked at Woolworths. Yeah, um, <laughs> and visually, uh, yeah, it's red. It's probably a great length Uh, what's the length of this
0: a metre yeah just shy of a metre I think yeah Yeah. it's about a
1: metre long it's got some lovely tassels on the end and it's got this really lovely um, motif of four snowmen wearing little grey hats and what I can only imagine stitches are meant to look like little snowflakes coming down um yeah I bought that
0: yeah I think it's a gorgeous choice um I also think it's interesting because knowing you personally I know it's an item that you still wear in fact you're wearing it at the weekend I and um, so I think that's interesting that this is something that I'm assuming has childhood resonance and is but also it's something that you continue to enjoy wearing so it hasn't become a preserved piece it's still active in your wardrobe
1: no definitely I think one of the reasons why I brought it is because it I realised that this is probably the the thing I've had in my collection the longest. Like, if I've had it, I don't want to give away my age, but I've had it for 30 years, which uh, is kind of impressive that it's kind of survived, and I've, I've kept it this whole time. Um, and also, it's got lots of memories for me, because uh, I don't know if your mum was like this, but my mum in the 80s, was obsessed with matching me and my brother in outfits. Yeah. <laughs> so I had this red one um, with a matching hat, which had snowmen on it. I was hoping there'd be a hat. Yes. Um, and my brother had a blue one with a matching uh, hat. And she she also, on in the summer, we had matching Bermuda shorts. He would have blue and turquoise ones, and I would have pink and, and neon yellow. Um, so for me, it's got a lot of lovely memories, but also... Um, I definitely identify as a northerner and I think for me whenever I carry this around it's like a nice link with my, my own roots and my, my family up north
0: yeah absolutely and it's carried you through and it's your mum's choice but it's also a choice that was paired with your brother and within that family grounding uh, within that, you said uh, two things that I wanted to pull pull up on. First of all, you called it your collection rather than your wardrobe. You, <laughs> <laughs> with your clothes, do you think of yourself as a collector, even when it's an item like this, that one, has been selected for you by someone else originally, but two, that you continue to wear on a regular basis?
1: I probably wouldn't give it the status of a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think that I... I am a bit considered about what I buy and what I acquire. Um, and I think this just feels more precious. And maybe I just called it a collection because yes. it's 30 yes. years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It so it's, it's officially vintage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like
0: that. Um, I think I know the answer to this, but is it an item that you've consciously kept?
1: Yeah, yeah. it has. It has stayed with me um, because I loved it so much. Although I'm not really sure. It's somehow just whenever I've, I've moved house a lot in 30 years and I've somehow managed to keep it so I think it's a keeper yeah I nearly lost it twice on the weekend so I'm really really glad it survived yeah Yeah.
0: you're about to make another choice if you've lost it at this point (laughs) um yeah I always say liked what you said about ascribing it or attaching it to your identity as a northerner and that's something that you think it's important to represent in your clothing um do you have any other clothes that you wear that make you feel like a northerner, or the opposite of that anything that you wear that makes you conscious of having lived in the south for a while? Are you considering um, them as a split, or is it just that this one's an exception to the rule?
1: I think this one's probably an exception for me, although I guess um, knitwear I would associate with being in the South, because I've softened over the years, and I, <laughs> I get really cold. Yeah. I used to, back in the day, I used to go out clubbing in my tiny little dresses and no tights, because I didn't want to pay for the cloakroom, but now um, I get really cold, so probably knitwear for me is yeah. like, yeah, it's a southern thing. Yeah. So
0: this this uh, scarf is perfect because it bridges the gap between those northern memories and childhood, but also keeps you warm in the south. But yeah, I think that's really interesting that it can it can operate in both spaces, essentially. Um, does your mum know that you still have it? Is it something that your family appreciate you caring this much about?
1: Uh, I think my mum does know that I still have it, although I don't know if I've worn it recently up north. So no. I'll take it up for Christmas and I'm hoping that it'll ping some memories for her. Yeah. I mean, it's quite obviously a child's scarf. I'm sure she would remember, and I'm sure she's probably got some photos. Yeah, that would yeah. be lovely. An adult
0: photo of you in it paired with one as a child. <laughs> I mean, that'd be great. Yeah. I really love as well, you kept saying about pinging memories or it being a memory prompt, and I think that's quite striking. Do you find yourself waiting every... I, I, have, I definitely have items that I repeat wear or that see me through year on year that I get excited about getting to wear again when the time comes.
1: Yeah. Like certain materials, like you and i both love velvet and mm. i think that's a particularly kind of christmasy and wintery thing that we yeah. always crack out um yeah i do that velvet dress which i only recently acquired i think is going to be my go-to for every christmas from now on yeah. with a little peter pan collar yeah no, it's a gorgeous one
0: but then there's an anticipation as well of, of when you're going to get it back out again and, and the, the season that's fit for it i think that's lovely uh, so clearly a treasured piece and one to keep on for Um, the years to come and the cold cold summer winters to come as well (laughs) was it an easy choice to make what object to bring with you I think sometimes um, people who are used to working with objects almost find the brief harder than those who aren't
1: yeah I um I wanted it to be something of some major significance Mm -hmm. um but actually it's a kind of easy choice you know it's it's been with me for 30 years it holds a lot of memories and I'm still wearing it today so it's kind of lasted the test of time um, and it's kind of amazing how many comments I get when I wear it, so yeah even without that kind of personal connection to it yeah that's
0: interesting yeah but it always it draws other eyes rather than just the emotional one as well that's a yeah brilliant choice thank you very much for sharing it within that we kind of spoke about your personal style a little and and your kind of attachment to clothing or how you might read your own clothes I'd love to kind of round up our conversation by going into that a little bit more so do you think that your work influences the way that you dress or your relationship to clothing
1: Yeah, I do. Definitely. Um, I think the kind of more research you do, the more you kind of appreciate like certain designers work, um, or certain fabrics or techniques or like a certain silhouette. Um, I got really excited. I think it was last year when I found, uh, in Zara, um, uh, leg of mutton sleeve yes I yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's like a 19th century sleeve yes. that's very very plumed at the top and then narrows and I found a kind of very similar denim cropped white uh top in Zara and got really excited about it because it was like an amazing um just meeting of two worlds like yeah. white denim and this incredible plumed sleeve mm, um contemporary so, high street as well yeah, but, yeah so like little kind of little uh, features like that I get really excited by but I think also it's more just um, obviously particularly topical at the moment it's about sustainability and I think we as fashion historians and creators we know I think we know a lot more about the kind of production process and the kind of human cost of certain types of fashion so I think we make a lot more informed decisions um, about that, she says having just bought something from Zara a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: All about moderation, though. But yeah, absolutely. You can see a different perspective on yeah. it before it comes comes home with you,
1: and definitely more of an awareness. But I think for me, I the way that I it probably most affects me is that I don't think of something as being like a temporary thing that yes. I acquire. Like I think more about like the journey of a garment and that it might even outlive me. Yes. Um, and I think I've always been quite interested in that kind of um, journey of a garment and its kind of lifespan Um, but I think definitely having worked in this job it kind of it frames the way that I think about it and it makes me be a lot more um, conscious about what I'm going to keep because Mm. that's going to stay with me hopefully for a long time. Yeah
0: absolutely so it's not transitional it's about uh, building a, a support system or a set of garments that will see you through the years but also the idea that it might might outlive you or might span beyond your personal taste yeah yeah really really fascinating because i think sometimes when people hear fashion or fashion curator they assume we're really attached to or driven by the industry but i think largely maybe we work on a a different mechanism um so i like the idea of you having a lot of contemplation about your clothes Um, the answer to this might be associated with the object that you bring in but but, uh, that you've brought in but i'd be interested to know your earliest
1: memory involving clothing so it's probably from around the same time, like uh, maybe six. Um, it was so my grandparents used to do this amazing thing where they would go off traveling around the world. Um, they were of that generation that didn't do it when they were younger. They definitely saved up so they had money rather than credit. And so they did a lot of their amazing travels later in life. Mm. And I benefited a lot <laughs> from it. Um, and I, when, whenever they would go anywhere, like, they brought me back this incredible kimono from Japan. They brought me back this beautiful... Um, like hat uh from Egypt um or the conical woven straw hat from Vietnam and I had a massive collection of kind of dressing up clothes Amazing. which were kind of from all different parts of the world and I did a massive fashion show at school and I got all <laughs> my friends to dress up so I think that's probably my earliest kind of big memory of fashion um and just a real excitement about the ways that different people dressed Yes. in these kind of exotic places yeah
0: yeah and that was giving you access to somewhere that you'd never been and yeah in the imagination also love the idea that even at that age you were being performative or kind of platforming the clothes and it was about sharing it with your classmates not just exactly enjoyment. <laughs> I think that's wonderful and also same as fashion motion today it shows the garments in use and in action on the body rather than in the abstract but also that idea of dressing up I think it's pretty wonderful mm. and you know, different context, different scale, but it's comparable to your scarf in that the importance of that memory is its perhaps its connection to your family and what they were able to do. And.
1: Yeah, and I think it came from a place of being interested in different cultures. Like, at that point in my life, I always loved National Geographic and would read all the magazines and was really interested in, like, animals and other cultures. And this was, like, an extra strand. It was kind of a way into these other cultures through, like, the, the clothes that they... That they wore. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it kind of piqued another interest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Early no, no contemplations. um do you think you read the clothes of others around you you've spoken there about the way that those clothes resonated and gave you access to something you hadn't seen before and that you hadn't actually experienced yourself how about when you're walking down the street or when a colleague passes you in the corridor do you think you assess clothes around you
1: yeah all the time um it's probably the first thing that i notice about people and i often comment on it um Because I think you can just learn so much about somebody um, from the clothes that they wear. You know, it's an amazing way of expressing your identity and your interests and uh, the kind of job that you do. Um, So, yeah, it's just a kind of really immediate way of kind of connecting with somebody. Um, So, yeah, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Noted. (laughs) <laughs> I find
0: that there's a neat split in curators um, between those who will and who won't wear vintage whereas when I first started working in museums I kind of assumed that we were all going to be um, you know, living and breathing this subject um, I also think, to be honest <clears throat> quite often the public expect fashion historians to be kind of templates of the period that they're working in I think sometimes people are disappointed if you don't turn up as a, a pin-up to an event <laughs> um, so I think largely fashion curators either have a passion uh, for wearing vintage or for wearing contemporary designers and this two hedge bets. Do you
1: recognise that?
0: Um, and do you agree? As a starting point for that question.
1: Yeah. No, I would. Um, it's kind of a funny one. I think, especially as a fashion historian, like I think there's a fine line to be had. Like I've always been interested b- before being a fashion curator in fashion and wearing vintage, um, but I think there's a difference between garments that are collectible i think particularly with an institution like the vna where we collect high fashion uh largely and named designers often um i'm not wearing you know vintage jewel i'm not wearing vintage valencia i wish i was i wish i was but there is a definite like the way that i treat a 1950s Dior garment, or even a 1960s Mary Quant garment, which is a much more kind of stable, easy construction, um, is more like a precious object. I, yeah, I, I think the things that I choose to to collect slash wear are not the same things at all. And I think there is a distinction there. Um, but yeah, we don't all do that. There's a lot of cos wearers. Yes. There's a lot
0: yeah, of cos a lot wearers of in the, and a lot of curatorial black. So. Yeah. But yeah, again, I, I think you're proving yourself to be extremely conscious about what you do professionally and personally and I like the idea of that line for you between what should be collected and what should be worn and put into active use. Um, Do you remember when you started being interested in vintage? Was it an association maybe with those items that your grandparents brought you back from their travels or were you hopping around car boots at an early age? Where did it come from?
1: Um, So I went to a posh school and uh, it... Up north, uh, where I come from, it was kind of like if you pass the 11 plus, you went to the posh school and they were always gendered, the boys school, the girls school. Um, I was at a posh girls school and a lot of the girls that I went to school with had a lot more disposable income than my family did. Um, and I think... As much as I probably wasn't super conscious about it at the time, I think there was there was like a second shop. Mm-hmm. Um, no one ever called it vintage in that town. <laughs> yeah, um, it was the second part. shop, so someone's kind of cast off. But some of them were designer garments. And I remember going in there, age like eleven or twelve, for like own clothes day, and I picked up these amazing um, vintage machino jeans from the eighties and a matching machino. Uh, cropped white top with a holographic uh, logo That's on it incredible <laughs> yeah and they were like crazy crazy cheap and I think for me like my way into vintage was basically trying to compete mm-hmm. um, on a fashion level and a style level with all the other girls who had a lot more money than i did and often were quite bitchy about like yeah. not having certain designer clothes on or the coolest trainers um, and as much as you might think of that as a kind of negative approach to it. it was like trying to compete i think it proved that it kind of sparked a kind of creativeness in there yes. about not kind of towing the line and kind of just doing your own thing and discovering a style that works for you
0: yeah absolutely making your own mark but I love how you frame that because I interviewed someone else recently for this series who had a kind of comparable story about why they started shopping um in vintage or second hand but theirs was to break away and to uh you know to be pointedly different to to their kind of contemporaries whereas I like the idea that yours was to um was to compete. And it was almost a more active or positive approach because it was saying, I can do this in my own way and I can match you or better you, but yeah. from this very different um, marketplace and experience.
1: Mm. And I think also the other thing that has always appealed to me about vintage is, and it kind of, it's something that I get to explore in my work as well, is that story of the object. Mm-hmm. Like, I always... I've always loved and still love like finding something in a charity shop or finding something in a vintage shop and thinking about all the other people who might have worn that um, and like who where they would have worn it and what their lives were like and what they were like and what their personalities were like and it's almost like yeah kind of shared history that you have with the other wearers of these garments which mm-hmm. I've always found really exciting. Um, Even shoes, like, I'm happy to admit it, I will buy vintage shoes and I've got no qualms about it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So yeah, you're, rather than put off by, you're drawn to the fact that you're one of many wearers. Yeah, it's like a shared
1: history of the object.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Um, So we've spoken a lot about the connection between people and their clothes. Um, I'm really interested in where's wardrobes, where an item or multiple items will be collected to kind of commemorate a person rather than just the maker or social context of that piece. Um, as a kind of final question to close our conversation, if I was to collect you, if I wanted to acquire a, an item or a garment to try and remember your style or your connection to clothes, what would it be?
1: I was thinking hard about this, and I was going to go for a different answer. I was going to say... Um A collection of vintage, often synthetic, late seventies, early eighties tea dresses because I they're my go-to dress and I buy them like every now and then and I have a collection of quite a few of them and that often kind of um, Peter Pan collared or bib fronted or button fronted or pussy bowed at the front Um, and also because I haven't worn trousers or jeans for like fifteen years so that's my go-to yeah a vintage midi dress. But then I was thinking about my handbags wow. and actually for me it's probably handbags because I have this, like whenever I get really excited and find a new handbag, that's like the, the bag that I love and I cherish until it literally falls apart mm-hmm. and over the years I've had some really lovely ones and there was like, there was one in particular that I had a few years ago that was this gorgeous one and I had it for years, it was like 1960s white and it black kind of yeah it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, my yeah. favorite yeah, yeah. <laughs> um woven with lucite handles and a lovely kind of lucite kind of plaque on the front of it and I loved it so much and I wore it to death until it fell apart um, and then after that, I remember I had a birthday. It was around about my 30th birthday. And everyone asked me, like, what do you want for your birthday? And I think I had individual conversations with all of my friends and said, I'm not sure, maybe some kind of handbag. And I ended up getting for my 30th about seven iridescent handbags. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, like, my recent handbags. So I've got two on the go at the moment, which is rare for me because I normally just have one. Um, the... Big one that I use a lot is, it's a handbag. It's got um, a lenticular kind of holographic picture of leopards on it, um, which kind of come at you. Uh, And then the back of it is a kind of um, patent um, leather, like a shiny, shiny fabric. Um, And that, again, it's, it's not just about the objects. It's about when I bought them and the kind of related key moments in my life. And that was one that I bought when I was in New York a couple of years ago. And when I bought it from a thrift store in New York, I just thought, I wonder who owned this before me, and I really hoped it was some really cool granny with like amazing taste and holographic bags. Um, So yeah, I think it would be my handbag collection. Yeah, I think that's marvellous.
0: I like the idea of that distinction between different kinds of wares or different kinds of experience of, of garments or objects as well, that these dresses are a real passion for you, but they're something you have on rotation and you'll have a, um, the whole purpose is to have it have them in a mix whereas with a bag yes it is about repeat use and it being a kind of acclimatized part of your life um, mm. for as long as it's, it's in action and also with a bag you get to think about where it takes you and what you take inside it it's quite a defining feature of your day-to-day life while it's in use
1: exactly yeah. literally your most impo- important things are all in that little bag or that giant bag yeah
0: yeah, and I do think you're quite a Mary Poppins with your bag. So, what can there be lurking <laughs> inside? I think that's a fantastic choice. And also, again, the fact that you've managed to connect it to multiple people and perspectives within that one object that it's stemmed from who's had it before, where you found it, or who helped you find it, and uh, the life that you carry it through once you have it. So, thank you. Lovely choice to close with. I could talk to you forever, but I <laughs> <laughs> let you free for this cold winter evening. So, thank you so much for joining me. It has been absolutely fascinating. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.